What's up, fantasy nerds? Today on Inking Out Loud for episode 70, we're on 70 episodes now, we are wrapping up on our journey into Glenn Cook's Books of the North, the fourth installment in his Chronicles of the Black Company, The Silver Spike. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And where would we be without returning special guest, Holy Inquisitor, Jared Livingston? Yo! (laughs) (laughs) Drew. Drew, my man, my brother in arms, what happened in the Silver Spike? Uh, A lot. Um, (laughs) This book is Insanity, uh, Insanity Squared. It kicks off with a couple of lowlifes from the city of Or, just south of the Barrowland, deciding that they're going to make a big score by going up to the Barrowland and stealing the Silver Spike out of the son of Old Father Tree and selling it to the highest bidder. In the process of this whole little shenanigan plan that they have, Toad Killer Dog unearths the head of the limper, and with the help of some of the shamans in the forest, gives the limper a new body. Uh, Smeds and Tully and Timmy Loken and Old Man Fish, the, the thieves, do manage to seal the silver spike. Uh, by the time they get back to Orr, the limper and Toad Killer Dog are on a rampage, heading south, chasing after Croker and the lady. Uh, they destroy Orr, they destroy Lords, Roses, they're rebuffed by the the wizards in the Tower of Charm, but they keep going south. They destroy Opal, they destroy Beryl, they destroy a giant temple of the, called the Temple of Traveler's Repose before uh, Darling, with the help of Old Father Tree and the Plane of Fear creatures, stop the Limper and uh, almost destroy him, but he is in turn given a new body, more powerful, made out of clay instead of wood, and he turns north, deciding to, to leave behind his uh, mission of vengeance in favor of going back to Orr and getting the Silver Spike. Meanwhile, uh, Darling and uh, Silent and Bowmans and Raven and Philodendron Case, who was our new analyst for this book, head to Orr because they also need to you know, figure out what to do with the Silver Spike to prevent it from falling into evil hands. It follows the adventures of, you know, that group under Darling, as well as Smeds and, and Tully and Old Man Fish and all of them, up to a just absolutely bonkers climax where the Limper arrives in Or. there's wizards from Charm there, there's a whole army from the Plane of Fear, wherein the Limper is finally killed, Toad Killer Dog is finally killed, they are, uh, like, rendered in a in a like boiling pot and then tossed into the void along Toad killer with dog the silver with spike. I didn't I didn't he, pick up oh, that yeah. detail. Toad killer dog was boiled with him? Yeah, when oh. he went into the pot, Toad killer dog was like latched on his head. Oh, that's right. And, and the whale when he came, came down. out of the pot. All of the like limbs of all the monsters and that's stuff right. got melded into yeah. one. Yeah. Um but yeah, so at the end of it, Raven is dead. Silent is dead. Bowman's is dead. Uh, Darling and Case go off to retire and, and grow potatoes. The Silver <laughs> Spike has been uh, yeeted into the <laughs> Howling Void. And, uh, yeeted and into the, howling the administrators void. of the Ladies' Empire are now kind of uncontested in their control. 
So, yeah. A lot for a book that was technically shorter than the first one. Yeah. There's a lot, There's a to go lot there. that happens. Oh, yeah. You know, jumping right into style here, I wanted to say I loved, right off the bat, the epigraph that we got right before chapter one. Turned out to be a quote from none other than the wizard Bowman's himself later in the book. That whole, our mission, our holy mission, given the white rose by Father Tree himself. I just, it gave such this feeling of momentum and purpose, spe specifically purpose, right out of the gate. And you knew where we were going for this book. Uh, and that's something for me that the last three books really didn't have. So I wanted to say, right out of the gate, my first 30 seconds impression of the Silver Spike was, heck yes. How about you guys? Uh, I want to ask you, what edition of this book were you reading? I do not the, have that epigraph no? in mine. <gasps> really? I'll me show you either. right now, because I have my phone right in front of me. Playbooks, Google Playbooks right here. Alright, so here's my book. I'm just going to show it to the camera. I'm going to go right back to the beginning. Hang on. The Silver Spike. It's right. Hang on. Contents. Shit, sorry guys. Right there. It's the first book, or the first page directly following the, the uh, table of contents. So That is very interesting. Table of that contents? That does not exist. Quote. Wow. Okay. Damn. But, yeah, that Anybody does who's not read exist the e in either... I, so I have the ebook right here. This is where it starts, chapter one. There's no epigraph. Wow. And there is no epigraph in the physical copy that I have either. Oh, it could be a Google thing, because it's a Google ebooks that I got it from, uh, the Play Store. Interesting. I'm, I'm curious Very to see if the audiobook, because I actually bought both the audiobook and the ebook since we were originally planning to record this on a Monday. I thought I was going to have a full 11-hour day of welding, and I was going to finish it on yeah. audiobook. But we pushed it forward a day. I ended up just cramming it all through that, physical. That almost strikes me as one of these things. They do it in a lot of the old like Star Wars Expanded Universe books, uh -huh. where they'll have like a like a page of like marketing like teaser scene yep. at the beginning of it uh and and that they like the publisher decided to put there to like if somebody's in the bookstore and and wants to look at the first page they can read this cool scene and be like oh that, that sounds interesting me a lot I'll, I'll read this book of what television was like like stupid crappy fantasy television was like in the 90s they would yeah. almost they'd have like a little yeah. elevator it's pretty common with older fantasy books yeah, but, but the fact that this doesn't exist in either my ebook or my physical copy tells me it was a, a marketing choice by whatever outlet you did, and well, that it, was, it wasn't actually an epigraph written like for there by Glenn. Yeah, so I'll, I'll rescind the term epigraph, but uh, it definitely, yeah. you know, like like an hors d'oeuvre, like an appetizer, it really got me salivating. So it was, it was yeah, definitely that's, that's really, really cool interesting. Style. Awesome. I'm glad I brought that up now, because I was deciding whether or not to even talk about this Epigraph. I'm going to use quotes now for that. Um, yeah, but, I, uh, I, that's crazy. I, I wonder if, like, have there been epigraphs like that in your other ebook editions of the previous books? Nope. Well, the, the, there was only one book I bought previously, which was the first three combined into one volume. And that one didn't. Oh, I don't think it did. you bought a standalone Just the Silver Spike ebook? Yep. Because, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that may be it. Because both my hard copy and my ebook are the. Com the you know omnibus version with all three. Oh yeah no my first ebook version has the first three books yeah and then it goes and then i had to buy you know silver spike separately for almost the same price believe it or not fucking google yeah that that must be like a an individual volume marketing cool. thing all right cool interesting um, we haven't heard really from cool. jared yet though jared right out of the gate what did you feel about this one in comparison to the last three were you as hooked were you more hooked were you 
Uh, I liked it less than Shadows Linger. Overall, or just at the beginning? Uh, but more, liked it more than Black Company. Uh, and what about White Rose? <laughs> uh, I, I think it's somewhere in the middle with White Rose. Like Shadows talking... Linger still being my favorite so far of the four. Okay, so you're talking about the book as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, and then I, would, I think my list is probably the same as Jared's. I think from first to last, I would go Shadows Linger, White Rose, Silver Spike, Black Company. I really, I liked um, the POVs from Case. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> it felt a bit empty without Croker, though. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. You know, I, I noticed a style change right off the bat with that first person narrator, as I imagine most people did, because. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the first sentence is a run on 37 word sentence. <laughs> and for anybody who's like, specifically like me, who's used to Croker, who's fallen in love with Croker's colorful filter through which he presents the world, it kind of irked me. Like, I, don't get me wrong, I was ready for a new narrator. I was anticipating a new narrator. And I was really, really trying not to go into it, you know, unblemished. But how starkly different it was, I was not prepared for. I, like, like this simplistic, enthralling manner in which, you know, Cook is writing here with Case's narrative voice. I want to say, I hate, I hate Case's narrative voice. I hate it. But really? <laughs> I don't have any problem with the guy as a character. I don't have any problem with him as a character. But, oh my, like, gee, like ah, it was taxing to read so many so many double negatives so many uh, purpose purposeful i think ham-fisted lots of slang incorrect grammar lots of slang it just yep. it, it felt a little too heavy for me that, that might be it it's not a flavor i don't like i think it's just a flavor that was too strong see this is like the main thing i wanted to talk about with style in this book and and this is like i mean this is a freaking testament to the skill of glenn cook as a writer that he can write a book in the same series, but written by a different character, one whom you've barely gotten to know before this, and it is so clearly written by a different person, right? Like, if you if you took Glenn Cook's name off the cover of all of these books, and you read the first three, and then you read this one, you'd be like, oh, is there, like, a ghostwriter? Like, is, is there another author working in this universe? <laughs> like, it, it, it feels like a different person writing it. It's so well done because of that. And on top of it, it's true to Case's character himself, because this is a guy who just learned how to write. He just learned how to read and write like two years ago. Oh, really? Raven taught him. Oh, that's yeah, right. He asked he, Raven to teach him. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, like he's he's oh. a newbie. Okay, so you know what? The I fact feel a little, that he okay. has these these ticks in his writing, whereas Croker has a much more polished uh, voice. It makes sense. Right? Okay, <laughs> yeah, like, I, I was expecting that maybe, uh, maybe Case just had a simpler upbringing, it was, you know, you, like, especially if he comes from, uh, potato farmers, oh, you know, it, like, you yeah, wouldn't expect certainly. him to be particularly, uh, el like, eloquent or articulate, but I hadn't considered that he was actually still technically new to the art of mm -hmm. writing. I totally forgot that detail that, that Raven had taught him, so... Damn it. Okay, so the, the, there's a little bit to be excused with the with the uh, strength of that flavor. If I want to keep using that analogy, okay, I, I'll take a little bit of that back. I don't, I don't hate his narrative voice anymore. It's just a little, I don't know. Man. <laughs> I think it like, might he, be kind of jarring at first, and then you get used to it. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely, 
<laughs> yeah, I got used to it. I will say I I prefer Croker's narrative voice over sure. Cases. Sure, everybody. But does, yeah. when we're when we're like taking that step back into what did Glenn Cook do with this? This is like one of the most impressive things I've ever seen an author do. <laughs> like just dramatically change his style and voice when writing a book. Yeah. Uh, it's it's hard enough as a, a writer to create your own unique style, right? And and to have your unique narrative voice come through when you're writing books. Mm. And then for Glenn Cook to just casually be like, oh, actually, I have two completely different styles and voices that I can just do. Like, it's it's really, really impressive. Case, Case has got a he's got a southern drawl, right? That's what he has to have. I I kind of read him like that. Yeah, that's how yeah. I read it. Yeah, uh, you yeah, know. He, sorry, go ahead. Just like that rustic kind of yeah southern, like southeast. Yeah. Yeah, maybe like Georgia, Florida kind of accent. Yeah, but I know me enough to know that there ain't nothing ever gonna turn out to be exactly what I want, and nothing is ever gonna satisfy me. Exactly. That's not paraphrasing. <laughs> that is an actual word-for-word quote. Now yeah. I just added a little bit of, of, of flavor on that one again, but excuse um, me, excuse probably me. He offended has a, some people. a Chan accent. What? <laughs> Sean Chan? What they, Sean, Sean Chan have, Sean, have a I know they call drawl. It, it's not a southern. It's a drawl, but it's like it's, it's just a it's mumble, very specifically. It? I, I believe Robert Jordan called it a Texas drawl. Oh it's really? A southern drawl. Yeah. No way. <laughs> Are you shitting me? <laughs> I am not. <laughs> you should not have told me that. <laughs> oh my! I can't take Fortuona seriously now. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I also since I, I just want to I'll point this out since I did just mention I bought the audiobook and the ebook. Falling asleep, I have been like you know okay I, I come to the point where I can't keep my eyes open anymore. I'll switch over to the audiobook and fall asleep to the audiobook. I want to give a shout out to this narrator, Jonathan Davis. Oh. And I yes. think it was Pat who highly, highly recommended yeah. him before. Was you through Pat, Pat or something? Did highly recommend him. I want to say Pat was was straight on the money there. This this man, Jonathan Davis, is an absolute beast. Uh, he's not. He doesn't have quite as epic of of a tone as some audiobook narrators, like for example Michael Kramer. But his the way the manner in which he can flip to a different character. With a lot of other audiobook narrators, you can still hear that person's voice, even though they're really, sometimes they're really good at accents. They're really good at switching to sex so that they can switch to a higher register. But Jonathan mm-hmm. Davis is in another category entirely. It sounds like an ensemble cast. It's the weirdest, most surreal thing to hear him <laughs> switching in between characters. And it sounds like somebody else is in there, in the room, in the booth with him. So, how did he, how, how does he do like Darling's finger speech? Does he do that in a feminine voice? You know, I don't know actually. Uh, the, the the two or three times I fell asleep listening to it, I'm pretty sure I was listening to the Southern Draw the entire time. But it was early on in the book before Case was really involved at all with Darling. Yeah. I actually don't know. I'd be really interested in uh, in checking that out too. <laughs> I feel like huh. these would be really hard to follow in audio yeah. format. Oh yeah, but just as 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 one hopeful as one like inspired hopeful voice actor someday myself in some form i mean i guess that's kind of what we're doing right now in a way it's it's really inspiring for this guy whom i've never even heard of to find out that he's got this kind of talent it it was it was awesome they found the right guy they definitely found the right guy for this nice yeah i'd be interested how he did limper and toad killer dog 
I imagine, yeah. especially when How limpers, do you even like, do that? Li- limpers resurrection. I've got a quote here too. I was just planning on giving it that kind of vocal fry, you know? Oh, I have, I have such like a, a vivid. I don't want to say image, but I guess <laughs> image is the right thing. Like image of how the limper sounded when he was resurrected and like had this like raspy, like, evil voice on the wicker dead. body. Like <laughs> oh. <laughs> he comes out of the you ground. Know, oh man, so creepy, so creepy. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, going on with style though. Um, the, sh- the chapters were shorter. I noticed that right away too. I we had. Uh-huh. I, I noticed definitely when I got to eighty. I was like, "Damn, this this holy crap!" And this is again the shortest book so far in the series. Yeah. Uh, chapter eight, for example, I think it was chapter eight. I counted like two hundred words or less. It was like two or three paragraphs. I was like, "Chapter eighty wow. itself is two paragraphs." Chapter that, eighty that itself at the bottom as of well. the page. There is, is that is all of chapter eighty oh. right there at the bottom of the page. Damn. See, I'm also talking about <laughs> Chapter 8, because Chapter 8 was where we got our first uh, point of view from Old Man Tree. No, wait, no, sorry, that was, um, oh. no, 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 sorry, it was the return of Bowman's. Pardon me, there's a description of the old man who had contrived to fake his death, running out, like, running out into the street and yep. crying, and then he vanishes. It's that paragraph at the bottom of the page, and yep. then that paragraph at the top of the page. Yeah, so it's, it's three, so short. It's three paragraphs, yeah. That's amazing. Yep. And it's cool, though, it's just <laughs> enough, it's not too short. It definitely doesn't drag. I mean, how are you going to make something like this drag? Um, unless you're... His, oh. Those really short chapters <laughs> never seem weird. I think they work. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is a, like an idiosyncrasy of Glenn Cook's writing style. There are not many authors who could pull off this kind of like short, choppy chapter structure. Yeah, when you have 80 chapters in 215 pages... And an epilogue, yeah. Yeah. It's it's like yeah, an average of like two, two and a half pages per chapter. That's crazy. When you think about someone like Robert Jordan or Brandon Sanderson, these guys who have seven, eight, nine thousand word chapters, or in the case of Robert Jordan, a one hundred and eighteen page prologue, like <laughs> the prologue of Knife of Dreams is more than half as long as this whole book. <laughs> That's amazing. But he he had definitely yeah, fell into a rut there, Mr. Jordan. He he found his voice and he stuck with it. Bless him. He stuck to his yes. guns. <laughs> yeah, and you know, so, go, ahead. go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, I wanted to point out something with writing style, though, that yep. I didn't really pick up on until this read of the book. And I'm curious if this ever crossed your minds. Okay. Okay. So chapter 80 itself, it is Smed's last scene. Yeah. And now we've been talking about this, you know, philodendron cases, narrative voice, and this kind of rustic accent that permeates it and all of that. I'm going to read chapter 80 to you. Okay. Smeds laid the last stone on the old man's cairn. The tears were gone. The anger was quiet. It was not right that fish should have fallen to cholera after taking the worst that could be thrown by the world's nastiest villains. But there was no justice in this existence. If there was, Timmy Loken would be here, not Smed's stall. Smed's went on into the City of Roses. A year later, he was a respected member of the community, owner of a struggling brewery. He lived well, but without ostentation that would excite unwanted curiosity. He never told his story to a soul. Does that sound like Philodendron Case narrating that to you? Not in the slightest. Definitely not. 
That, no. I mean, I can't... I, I want you to sit on that. Phrasing. Because I have a theory about it, but I can't tell you the theory until we get to the end of the series. Oh, so this is this is something that's... If, if, if there's something behind it, it's not revealed for at least another few books. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I, I... Over the course of reading this book, I noticed how there was a distinct shift in Smed Stahl's narrative versus the first-person case narrative to the point where I was... Like, I mean, I was thinking about how I wanted to talk, you know, on the topic of Cook's writing prowess and how he can, like, swap between voices and styles so easily. And then it, it started hitting me. I was like, this doesn't read like Case. The first-person Case points of view and the Raven and Bowman's, those, those read like Case. Smed's does not. And then we get to the end, and I had forgotten this detail. He did not tell a soul his story. Oh, but hang on then. Oh, okay, I suppose this is something that could have been penned by a much older Smeds once he's had plenty of time to practice his diction. But it's definitely odd. I hadn't considered there, that. I'm glad you pointed it out. There is some major oddness going on there. And like I said, we will, we will revisit this at the end of the series because I have what I think is a pretty solid theory on it. Uh, but... It, it, this is the first time, and this is, I believe, my fifth time reading this book. This is the first time I've really noticed, wait a second, I don't think this is Smed's, or, or this is Case writing the Smed's points of view. Oh, for the entire Smed point of view? Or just for I this do point? Not believe, I do not believe it was Case writing the Smed's POVs. Okay, as a whole. Awesome. Yeah. I had, okay, that's even bigger than I thought you were where you were going with that okay well, wait i was kind of just assuming that was the case Real, were you well so as uh, we've seen no pun intended in the i, I, I was oh <laughs> shit oh come on i didn't even pick up on that until you <laughs> i was oh, just man. assuming that smed oh. jared like, you go sit in the corner for five minutes they're not the same <laughs> i i can't we just assume that he's stepping he's he's writing from a different point of view i don't understand Wait, so um, you think it's Case writing from a different point of view? No, 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 no. I, uh, Glenn Cook. Like, I just... I, I right, always assumed... Who, because these books are presented to us as in-world artifacts that somebody is writing in the world. Who wrote Smedz's story? Hmm. <laughs> because in Shadows question. You know, we had the split third-person story with Marin Shed, and we got a, a, a reason for it. At the end of the book, Croker says, it was during this time that I talked to, it was over these, these days and weeks, that I talked to Marin Shed and got all of the story that has been laid out previously in this volume. It's a bit of a he paradox. He says that. Well, that's Because odd. what we're doing is reading the artifact we're reading Croker's annals, and in his annals, he wrote a third-person narrative about Marin Shedd. This, this sounds kind of and like... so... I don't know. Yeah. That, that amount of information just sounds also like somebody who had inquired about Smeds and just learned a few except, sentences of their life. Except, at the very end, the last line, he never, he never told, told his a story to a soul. 
So maybe this is put together by somebody. I don't know. That's interesting. That's like how much work would you have to go and how many footsteps <laughs> would you have to trace? How many conversations that you weren't there for, for, for a third person to be able to piece it together in this manner? That's and just... he's the only one who lived. He was the only one yeah. of the four. Old Man Fish died. Unless totally someone... died. Timmy Loken died. Unless someone retrieved his memories. Yeah, it's like a, that's something I could see happening means. in another universe. Some some kind of necromantic, uh, mm -hmm. some divination of a soul. But, but who secrets. would who would have the reason to do that? To learn about this, this is some I mean, very important stuff. Yeah. So I'm I'm just saying, like there, this is a really really crazy potential conundrum, conundrum that I stumbled on. Uh, reading this book, and like I said, I think I have the answer, but I can't discuss it yet because it would uh, spoil some plot elements uh, over the next six books. Have you looked up theories on Reddit or anything? Uh, I have not. Uh, I I really should. There is a, a pretty active Black Company Reddit. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I've seen Reddit. I've seen some good theory discussion there, but I have not uh, ever. I mean, obviously, I, I, I just finished reading this Friday night, I, yeah, and I went and spent most of my day yesterday golfing. <laughs> nice. Wasn't exactly going, you know, going onto the, the nice. Black Company forums to look for uh, Smed stall theories. <laughs> huh. Yeah, but um, since we're, we're 25 minutes into the episode now, we still have some... Uh, for me, I have, well, one style point to get out of the way here. I also want to back up 5-10 minutes and talk about, since this, this book... Being so much shorter than the last three, well, not so much, but noticeably shorter than the last three, and still yeah, including short. more and more chapters. Of course, as you would expect, going hand in hand with that, we have a much larger cast of characters from whose points of view we get to read. Uh, mm -hmm. Like we have, like like you had mentioned, we got viewpoints from. from oh, I wrote down the wrong word here. Uh, Case and Smeds, but also we have points of view from Toad Killer Dog. We have points of view from the like the various transformations of of Limper. Uh, we have tra yeah. uh, a point of view from Old Father Tree. We have points of view from the Sapling. I just I wanted to say I love the diversity of we, characters yeah. we got here. We have points of view from Old Man Fish. We have points. Of oh, view I from forgot Old about Man's. Old Man Fish. Yeah. Sorry. What, like, what was that last one? I, I uh, talked over like an obnoxious prick. Bowman's. Bowman's has a couple of points of view. That's right. I mean, there. Ro Raven has points of view for the <laughs> first time. Raven has points of view. Yeah. <laughs> so many characters. And like, again, 215 pages for all of their yeah. stories. That's amazing. More points of view in this one book than in the previous three combined by a large mm. amount. Yeah, and that's something I picked <laughs> up on. Across the like, previous three, we have Croker, Marin Shed, Bowmans, and like this omniscient narrator on Corby, basically. That's it. Pretty much. And then in this book, we have, what, <laughs> nine or ten different points of view? We have a ton. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and and as he's given it to us in every book previously, why not have a little more fun with dramatic irony in this one? We have mm -hmm. Smeds and Case as Green and Ken. Or no, other way around, sorry. Uh, Ken and Green in that case. Yep. Uh, training in the same platoon in the, like, the Civil Guard or whatever the hell they were calling themselves at the time. I figured that was just pretty amazing. The, the Or Home Defense Forces, I believe it was. Or Home Defense Brigade. Yeah. <laughs> the what mouthful that, that they was. decided to settle on, yeah. In, instead of just calling them what they are, and that is yeah. cannon fodder. Yeah, or just like <laughs> the, the eligible fighting men's distraction, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
But that, that's it for for the uh, for my style points for this book. I'm ready to dive into characters unless there's anything else about his style that you guys want to talk so about. I had one last question for Hit both me of up, you. Dude. Starting with the first Black Company book, where you guys both expressed a difficulty with Glenn Cook's writing style in Indeed. the way the narrative would skip around and, and wouldn't dwell on details and situations. Uh, how do you think that has developed now through the first four books? How has it developed or how am I enjoying it? Uh, I mean, both. Like, do you think it is still an issue? Do you think he's still writing the same way? If I would, he is, do you have a problem with it? Like that kind of stuff. I think it's still recognizable, but I wouldn't call it an issue anymore. I guess maybe at certain very specific points. Okay. I'll say uh, for me, it wasn't. It was never something that was that I would deem a literary issue. For me, it was just a personal issue. I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I think like I, I think I ended up drawing the conclusion that it was just a, a personal taste thing. I didn't enjoy it then, and I don't enjoy it now. I think he's lacking a lot of description in a lot of areas. And I know you guys have made a point. Uh, well, sorry, you guys. Mostly Drew has been making the point about Glenn Cook not needing to stop and explain. He, he tells you what you need to know at the pace he needs you to know it. He doesn't bother himself with the little details. Myself, I very much appreciate those little details. I'm somebody who, who really... I don't have a very artistic mind in terms of the visual arts. I can't picture things very well. So for me, I, I much definitely appreciate the little details not on the level of robert jordan but the starkness with which cook no. is presenting itself or himself uh, or his characters i should say his narrative it's just, for me personally it didn't get any better it did not improve but i will not say that it's a problem with the book it's just interesting a personal taste I, felt, thing. I didn't appreciate it at the end i felt like with black company he was sort of still trying to figure out that style and that he refined it in some of these later ones. Yeah. So it's I, like, I it's, agree it's, completely. it's definitely recognizable, but I didn't find it as much as a, of a problem as I did in the first one. Yeah. See, like I, I may go a little more controversial on this. I do think there was a, like a mechanical issue with how he wrote the first book. And this is why I think the worst book or the first book is the worst book in the series. Um, it's I wouldn't it, say worst. It was just the least good early in. Yeah, I mean it, it's a decent book. I give it like three, three and a <laughs> half stars. It's being political and kind but of kind it of is, It is very clear to me, at least, how he has improved his craft while staying true to the spirit of his style. Where he can still write a, a crazy story in 215 pages and retain that that kind of sparsely detailed style, but he does it in a much smoother fashion now. We don't have these fits and starts in the narrative. We don't feel like we're missing big gaps in things like we did in the campaign, uh, you know, in the big retreat in the Black Company. All of the like the really important moments in the silver spike and i think also in in the white rose are at least explained if not outright shown we have scenes in the silver spike action scenes that in the black company and in the way he wrote the black company wouldn't have been you know a two or three page long scene it would have been like a couple of sentences and and i think it's it's him coming into his own and becoming more comfortable with his style, figuring out where the kinks are, 
Whereas, you know, and I make that comparison. Maybe in The Black Company, the scene when um, Old Man Fish cuts Raven and Case and the Torque brother. You know, that scene in The Black Company might be two sentences long. Here, it's like two pages long. If Robert Jordan wrote it, it would be a chapter and a half. Like, <laughs> if he didn't want to expand it into three volumes later. Exactly. You know, and, and it's... Uh, so it's Glenn Cook, I think improving his style finding his groove finding his voice as a writer uh and you know because this book we talked about the black company that came out in 1984 the silver spike came out oh when did the silver still spike late 80s Look, i don't think yeah. it was very very long uh, yeah afterward. 1989 yeah 1989 five years later but that that five years included obviously four more um five more uh, uh, Black Company books and also included several volumes of Garrett P.I., several Dread Empire books, several standalones. Like, uh, he he had a lot more experience under his belt by this point. And I think it shows. Yeah, and, you know, I will say that uh, that particular reason right there, because I agree with everything you just said, that is why I am still pretty psyched to go forward with the series in the future uh we might not get around yeah. to it for a, a decent amount of time but we <laughs> will get around to it because my interest has most definitely been peaked even after shadows lingered i knew i wanted to finish this thing as a whole so I, i'm looking forward to doing it in the future Just yeah because i know if, if better. his style in black company had stayed the same i probably wouldn't be finishing the series <clears throat> same but i, I don't like, think it did yeah yeah yeah, I, I agree with that. I think he grows pretty significantly as a writer. This is a similar situation to, for instance, Brandon Sanderson. Uh, you know, if, if Brandon Sanderson wrote the Stormlight Archive in the same manner, with the same rawness as he wrote, you know, the original White Sand prose or Elantris or something, you know, it would not have been as good a series. It just mm. would not have. Mm. And, and there's clear, like, I'm not going to say measurable because this is a subjective, you know, topic. But I think there's there's pretty clear, um, observable growth in the writing prowess of Glenn Cook throughout these first four books of the Black mm. Company. Now I can't stop. I mean, if about nothing how, else, sorry, I'm not like stopping and going back to reread the paragraph that I just went through to try and understand what was going on. I'm not doing that anymore either. I will give him that. <laughs> so that's I will give him that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's Just because I have not had to retrace my steps at any point in this series, or in this series, in this book, I will say there is a noticeable improvement. And it, the, the style still doesn't, like, he's still very abrupt. He's definitely more fluid with it doesn't feel as choppy it definitely feels more experienced yeah. the style just still isn't something that i am particularly inclined to uh to enjoy i suppose but uh, as far as the characters go i still want to know what's happening with the world i want to know what's happening with the uh the magic i'm still interested in seeing what happens after they and i quote you now drew yeet that silver spike into oblivion <laughs> I'm well, so maybe this is a, a good transition into characters I just, a, as a question. How yep. badly do you want to know what Croker and Lady were up to on that journey south while everybody was chasing them? 
and we never caught up to them. Really badly, because I thought they were going to catch up to them. <laughs> See, I thought they were going to catch them. I was physically yeah. angry when they were like, nope, we're turning around. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, yep, yep. Because I like as soon as Raven decided, okay, we're gonna go after them, and the case is on with him. Okay, that's awesome. They're they're following uh, Croker, and I'm like, oh wow, so they're not gonna be separated for very long. I'm like, I'm so down for this. I want to see where this goes because they definitely did not just leave on great terms, you know, mere minutes or hours before this. But they spent half of the book <laughs> a breath behind them, and then at the last minute decided, no, we're gonna turn around and do something else. I was like. What? It left me with the biggest literary blue balls. I was like, what are you... What? Okay. Tune back to Inking Out Loud around Christmas time for the fifth book of the Black Company, Shadow Games. <laughs> okay. okay. I was actually, okay. like, I was confused <laughs> because I remember Drew saying, like, we weren't going to see Croker in this book. And I'm like, well, yep, yep. it seems like we're uh, about two pages away. I will say, I didn't say we wouldn't see Croker. I, I said that this isn't Croker's story. Mm, okay, well, <laughs> interpreted yeah, as, we will not see Croker. Narrator, I, think. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was uh, like, like uh, Jared says that he was a bit confused. I was pretty amused. Because, to me, I was seeing this also from the lady and Croker's point of view. And how there's all these, four, all these, all these different parties trying to catch up to them for different reasons. And... They're just completely unaware. Like, I would love to see how that would work out on a comedy spectrum, and where it's just, they're so unaware of what's happening, they're just accidentally <laughs> keeping one step ahead of everybody else. It was, I it will was just say that, blissful like, blissful ignorance, it would just be hilarious. As this, <laughs> as this quote chase was going on, I couldn't, I can just picture Croker's smirk. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Read and find out. Oh, man. All right. Well, so I, I will tell dive you, into I. I yep. did buckle, and after finishing the Silver Spike on Friday night, uh, before going to bed, I started reading Shadows, uh, Shadow Games because I, I just couldn't resist. Because <laughs> nice. I know. I mean, I, I know where, where the rest of the series goes, <laughs> and I love it. My favorite part of like the, okay. the storyline is the next couple of books, and so I, I just I couldn't resist it, at least reading the first few chapters, because oh, it's fun. Okay, <laughs> that was fun. I want that on a soundbite for something. I don't know what I want to use it for, but you sounded very excited about that. Okay, all right, I can hear it in your voice. I'm really, really stoked for that. Yeah. Um, come on, hurry up, Christmas. Now let's dive into characters. Yes. All right, case. Um, I, I want to uh, expand a little bit upon what I was saying before because I was talking about how much his narrative voice infuriated me. Infuriates. I should use the present tense for that. <laughs> I did enjoy seeing his treatment of Raven. I enjoyed him as a character. Uh, like, Raven at this, especially where we picked up with Raven at the beginning of this book, he needed somebody to kick his ass. And Case does that, figuratively. Not literally. And literally. I, I, mean, I mean, well, what? what do you mean literally? He, he, does, he does at one point, literally, when Raven's super drunk and, and Case is just that fed count. up with him. That does not count. Ra Raven could fold him into a pretzel <laughs> if he was so... I don't know, I was just saying... <laughs> he, he kicks his ass a little bit. You know, that's what that's what Raven needs. And, and you know, reading from Case's point of view, particularly with his friendship with Raven, he has all these amusing little turns of phrase, all these observations about Raven's pitiful state at the beginning. Uh, I have a few quotes here, just, just like one sentence at a time. Mr. Ambition had already rolled over. Loved it. Yeah. Or, or <laughs> a, a later point where Raven is saying, 
you know, I've been thinking, Case, and Case just replies, brooding is the word I would have picked, old buddy. Yeah, <laughs> I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we have Raven uh, later when he starts to get, you know, a, a little more excited. He starts to come back to life, and he's extrapolating from sparse data, and he's, he's getting excited about divining Darling's plans. And Case, he's telling Case this, and Case just thinks, I tried to look like I gave a shit at three in the morning. Priceless. You know? So, I, uh, go ahead. my favorite line from Case was uh, when the wind whale explodes and Raven kind of like, you know, got knocked down and Case says, I felt like a total barrel dipshit. I was literally starting that now. sentence. I was starting that <laughs> sentence, you motherfucker. Perfect. Like, we're on the same page. We are literally on the same page. I like, have you ever heard Daryl dipshit? No, <laughs> I literally wrote his, I, I felt like a total Daryl dipshit standing there. He's got such a, a colorful vocabulary. I will be putting that in my pocket for use later. That's exactly and, and what I, I wrote about. I want to point this out. I, I mean, maybe this is just me showing my age here, but like for me, that whole like, you know, alliteration uh, naming thing. Yeah. That really only gained popularity in like vernacular. When I was maybe in like middle school, nervous early Nancy 2000s, comes to mind. Yeah, you know, like uh, you know, a gullible Gus or you know, whatever any any of those kind of terms. This book was written in 1989, and he was doing it. Yeah. Like, was that a thing back then? Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe we found the source. <laughs> We've done it, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I it it I laughed so hard. When I read that line. Daryl dipshit. Yeah, I did. I stopped. Yeah. I opened my note-taking app, and I went and I copied and pasted, put it straight in there. I really I like his sense of humor it. overall. <laughs> yeah, Case does have a good sense of humor. That's part of why I like well, him. I think so um, one of his favorites might have been, what was it, uh, Head Over Appetite? I'm pretty sure he oh, repeated yeah. that yeah. like he said four that, or five times. Yeah, he said that once or twice for sure. He, uh, yep. sh there was another thing that he said that I meant to bring up. I forgot to write it down. I don't know what it was. It might occur to me later, but I, I did like reading uh, Case and even just his chemistry with Raven. Even the side of Raven that we saw because of Case's presence was 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 cool. Like nobody from the Black Company really liked Raven, particularly Croker. Croker wasn't a huge fan. He made that very clear. There was the Captain, but it struck yeah. me always as more of like a, a unique understanding more than anything, so, like affection, comfort yeah. more than fondness. I wanted to bring that up and kind of see what you thought to like compare and contrast the yeah. the two best friendships Raven has very with very different the captain and with Case and how different they are like and how the captain is this kindred spirit he's described as the same type of like essentially the same person at the core you know he's he's got this mysterious background he's a very taciturn kind of grumpy person who can be a real badass when he wants to but but he's got this brooding element to him and and he and raven were drawn to each other because of that while case has this like youthful exuberance this go get him attitude where he's like look i want to improve my station in life his his whole life has been defined by saying i'm fed up being a potato farmer yeah, he's i'm ambitious. gonna go join the army He's and ambitious. then, I, and then he's in the army and realizes how miserable that is. And the first time he sees, like he he's a lot like Egwene in some ways in the Wheel of Time. Yeah, has this I can see ability, that. this social chameleon kind of ability to um, recognize opportunities to advance himself, and he latches onto them. Obviously, we're talking about very different scales of this between Egwene and Case. Uh, Case is 
much more small time, but <laughs> uh, but it's a similar phenomenon. They're, they're similar types of people uh, applying this sort of aspirational outlook on life to improve themselves. It kind of makes sense because it's exactly what Raven needs. Yeah, that's what yes. I was saying. That's exactly like that's that, that's the ass kicking and the friendship that Raven needs. Uh, like like, my, like the last thing I have about Case, where is this one more single moment where I just I I love the interaction between the two. There, uh, Case and Raven are on a series of rooftops, and it was it was it was Raven that says to to Case, said to Case, "It's clear, drop on down there," and then yep. Case just observes, "On down there was a two-story fall to a rough cobblestone landing." You're shitting me. <laughs> no. Well, then you go first so I can land on you. <laughs> just like, yeah. Awesome. You know, snort. I would, and then, yeah. and then Raven uh, does go first. And what was the line? How did he put it? Like, sprained um, his ankle. Uh, and when he, I, I know he done it just to give me some shit. And he got what he asked for, showing off. He sprained an ankle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's that's where you pull out a little bit. And you get back. You remember. You get the reminder again. This is an omniscient narrator. This is somebody who's like recollecting this at a much later date. I I, I loved like I had this mental image of Case like standing on the rooftop doing the like world's tiniest violin thing. Ah like... yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's everything I had I had written down about Case. I'm ready to go on to Raven since we're still talking in large part about Raven. Do you have anything yeah, else about uh, Case that you want to talk about, Drew or Jared? We we touched on everything I had. Nope, let's so. do it. All right, Raven. Because Raven, man, it, it, whew, we got a lot about Raven in yeah. this book. Yeah. I really want to like Sorry, Raven. I've wanted to like Raven since book one, and I just never get the chance. But you can't. Yep. You yep. can't. He never like throws him. you a freaking lifeline. He never gives you a reason. There's no handhold on Every time guy. I'm like, all right, this next chapter, like, Raven's going to turn it around, and, like, I'm going to be validated in liking his character, and then it never happens. So Every okay. time he makes a good decision, he cancels it out with another bad decision. Or he, or he cancels it out by pussying out of that decision. From, like, like, just, yeah, yeah it's so well, frustrating. Know, especially considering con the, the context we have. One of the first things we find out about Raven in this book that kind of prepared me for uh, disappointment, I want to say, um, is that we, like, we find out while he's under the guise of Corby in the previous book, he was already trying, at least trying, to find out information about his kids. Uh, and yeah. then, of course, the moment comes, he gets his opportunity, and it's, it's, it's heartbreaking watching Raven to, like have to listen to his kids, particularly his son, talk about him in that manner, um, seeing him and the, hide And there. how they leave. Yeah. How they leave. And one of them's like, one, was it the daughter? She, she kind the of daughter. He'd be welcome in our home. Yeah, and and as she's getting him. off the wind whale, she says, you know, if my father was alive and ever wanted to look up, I wouldn't hold it against him. Yeah. What no. he did. Well, I, what, and what, he what, doesn't do a thing. And no, he what, doesn't what do she a said, thing. Because I just read this like four hours ago. What she said was, uh, if my father, uh, my, my father would never, if he were still alive, he would never have to worry about being unwelcome in his daughter's home. Yeah. That's what, yeah. yeah. And then, and then Corby, or Corby, listen to me. Case goes on to think, well, that's an open door if ever I've heard one. Yep. And then Raven oh. still does nothing. Uh, speaking of, you just called him Corby. Uh, now you know his real name. Yes. Which also means crow. <laughs> Corvo. Oh my god, Corvo. it does, doesn't it? 
<laughs> as soon as I read again. Corvo, I was thinking of the Dishonored games. I was like, Corvo, that's cool. I like Corvo. Also, a little bit of Latin or Italian. Yeah. Uh, every name, it. every name he goes by, is just like another version of Raven. Wait till he, re- like... <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, wait till he resurfaces later as Black Bird. Yeah. <laughs> or Carrion Eater or something like that. No, no. Uh, unfortunately, Midnight Wing. Raven, Raven's. Uh... I mean, that sounds badass. Actually, I don't even know if I could say unfortunately. He, I mean, he, he went yeah. out like a punk. Yeah, no, exactly. So. See, uh, that's that, that's where I'm going next. It was really disappointing to see Raven absolutely chicken. I, I can't believe I just wrote down that word now that we're just talking about various birds. Chicken, chickening out of confronting his children. That entire chapter, or maybe it was two chapters, where Darling took her little detour there. She pulled some strings mm-hmm. with Old Man Tree and got him to uh, bless this little... Uh, side journey there uh, like it was so disappointing to see him get that chance and then just turn away from him but then seeing him turn dark once he gets his hands on the silver spike it gave mm-hmm. me that justification that I felt I needed after seeing his cowardice manifest so many times now so now I can say particularly because of that last example without question Raven was not nor was he ever quite redeemable so I'm kind of glad we still... It was disappointing to see, and I hated it at the time, but for the context, it gave that later scene a lot more meaning and a lot more closure. Yeah, it was. it's disappointing yet fitting. Yes. So in, in the grand scheme of your reading, on the scale of tragic characters, where does Raven fall? Because, oh my gosh, if there's ever been a, a tragic character arc... Oh, for me, I still, I think Raven is second for me, just because of how much I love Raven from Elantris. Oh, nice. Yeah. He has a really, that's, really, that's even a good though, one. That's a good one. Like, like you were saying, uh, that, yeah, go ahead. He's level four out of five tragic. How about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, I'd say four out of five. That seems about right. <laughs> and, and for me, and for me, Raven's like 4.5 out of five. So it's, it's very close. They're still very, very, very good examples. Both of them. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, shall we move on to maybe Darling? Sure, sure. I don't have much about Darling. I've only got a couple little points. Uh, I, I only have one real point about her, and it, it ties back to, to Case. And that is how how clear it was. You know, we got a little bit of a hint of this at the end of The White Rose, where she felt perturbed about how the men around her were trying to treat her like a prize to be won. And that continues in this book. There's this like heated rivalry going yeah, between yeah, yeah. Uh, Raven and Silent. There's a lot of and, dick measuring And it's happening. Case. It's Case who ends up with her. It's Case because all he tried to do was be her friend. And, and he was honest with her. That was the other thing. Neither Silent nor Raven was ever honest with her about it. Case didn't agree with her. And he told her that. He argued with her. He said, look, you're you're deluded. You're naive. This is why I support the Empire. And she would argue with him. And, and he points out at one point that they had to just kind of break it off to cool down. You know? But, but because he was the only one around her who wasn't, A, trying to use her as a piece of woman flesh. And, B, was being honest with her. They actually developed a relationship. And C <laughs> what a novel didn't... idea! Having a relationship with somebody. And C yeah. didn't put her on Raven. a pedestal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, not at all. Not at all. Sorry. And, uh, what, and... what did Jared say there? He cut out for one second on my end. I said, and C he didn't put her on a pedestal. Oh yeah. 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 Fair. 
Yeah, and, and so he was able to, like, interact with her as human being to human being, which is something neither Raven nor Silent could ever do. Like, <laughs> when she where, where Silent it. basically worshipped her, and Raven was scared of her as much as he wanted her. Like, it, it, it was this, like, miasma of unhealthy relationship approaches. <laughs> She's yep. probably, like, had very few people her entire life treat her this way, so... It certainly it's certainly no, It's no surprise that she responds to that. Yeah, and I want to say, I think <clears throat> Croker is one of the only other ones who does this. And that's why we have that moment in The White Rose where she hugs Croker. For just a second too long. And then she looks at... Yeah. Uh, uh, damn it, what was her name? Aldrith? Silent. No, she looks oh, at, oh. At, the, at the lady with oh, the, at the hint Ar of Arda. suspicion. Arda, thank you. She looks at her yeah, with a yeah. hint of suspicion, then she stops him later and asks, yeah. is she a special friend? Yeah. And I said at that point like he, in White Rose, I said, poor thing, I just, my heart bleeds for her. She's so lonely. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Case was the companion she needed. I suppose I can agree. I I, I will say, I was disappointed um, <clears throat> with, like, hold on, what a second. What, what do I, I think I might have put this in the wrong spot here. Oh, yeah, I was a little, okay, so I, I just, I was a little disappointed by how abrupt it was. We didn't, like, we got to see him start to attract her attention. We got to see him start to treat her organically and let that relationship develop. But we didn't really see much between the end of this book and the end of their lives. There was not a whole lot of context given there. I thought it felt very abruptly because, you know, once this, this silver spike is <laughs> yeeted, uh, she pats off her hand, she's like, all right, case... Now that the other two are out of the way, fuck my duties, fuck my obligations, fuck my service to 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 good, fuck to, to the tree, fuck I, I'm just gonna fuck you now. And then they ride off into the sunset, and and like I'm left going, what? Like she's I, retiring I did not at read the it that way. at the ripe old age of 25, 26? I said I was just like, okay, I thought she was gonna be with us for the rest of the series. I thought the White Rose was going to be this this much larger... Well, her, her, her job was done. She overthrew the lady. The land has stabilized. She has prevented the evil of the Dominator. Has the land back. stabilized, though? Yes. There's still we, a lot so of we had that, parties that... We I, had that internal kind of landscape of the, uh, the uh, Toad Killer Dog, where he's talking about the stages of empire. And he said, We have ended the age of the Conqueror, and we're entering the age of the Administrator. This is okay, I remember the that most line. stable the society will ever be this okay. is when the people who are in charge are bureaucrats they're there to do their job they're there to make sure that society functions to to make sure like things work it, the land is safe all of this stuff and and now that the limper is gone the silver spike is gone so no one of these Whoa. you know wizards or sorceresses will become another despot they have to work together stabilize okay i, I and suppose darling recognizes that i suppose it may have been colored then by my assumption that we're going to see the spike again and that i know that there, there are there are more books in the series so there has to be big conflict going forward but then that's a good point it could be a different type of conflict it depends on what cook is planning on doing with it uh oh <laughs> oh boy <laughs> yeah but um i don't know My, myself i was i was thinking the white rose despite the fact that she lost her powers there was still something bigger for her to do and she was de definitely very involved with with the ending of this with this whole series so far uh, but, but she was more involved as a symbol 
yeah, than anything. Like, I, I don't know. Like, and, and that we, symbol's gone now. There's no reason for yeah, the symbol to and exist. The only so. part of her that could have been like diving into her character, her life afterward, you know, without her her null powers, where she's enjoying living as a as a standard woman with a, with a regular family, and it's just we never got to see that part of her either because Cook summed it up in like four sentences. So I, I don't know. To me, Darling was she left. Uh, I just I left a little disappointed in that I didn't really get a reason to cheer her on as much as I would like to have. I mean, okay, I would argue. Fair. I would argue. What bigger is there left for her to do? I mean, she's oh, done quite for a bit all by twenty five. Yeah, see, this is this for all I know. The White Rose is like a hidden legend that's actually going to come back and deal with whatever <laughs> force. Uh, manages to obtain the silver spike, which is going to have to be more dangerous just to achieve in the first place. And now there's a bigger, more world-spanning danger, and that the White Rose is somehow linked to this little bit that, like, I don't know. Like, I, I thought it was going to be bigger than it was, just a little bit. So, it, could, it obviously, this could just be me, a mistaken assumption. These books are shorter. Uh, Cook, like, I should probably apply the same philosophy to the series as a whole that I do to his sentence-by-sentence prose, and that he doesn't waste any so, time. He tells you only what you need. These books are short. I, I also appreciated how Case and Darling ended this book, because it reminded me of, without spoiling anything, the way a certain major character rides off into the sunset at the end of a certain major fantasy series. Really? Yeah. That that, where there was, all. like... There was this, like, this moment of peace. This, like, we've dealt with so much chaos and violence and, and awfulness. And now our jobs are done. We can settle down and just live a peaceful life. Hmm. I just, uh-oh. I just realized. Going forward, though, how, how, how far into the future did we see there? They were, they were, they were you know, uh, grandparents at that point, right? There was Wait, what? a very... Like, uh, we, we went forward in future enough that we heard about them being grandparents, Case and Darling, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, they they do, they do so say... We can assume yeah. that they live until, you know, at least 60s, 70s, so that the, the fact that there's still two more comet cycles supposedly due in between now and then, does that not take away a little bit of... Uh, of I don't know, intensity for the next few books. Because of, I don't know. The next few books, if they're like immediate threat and you know, okay, well, well Case and Darling lived until 60 and 70. For me, it's like, oh, maybe that's why yeah. this well, book was written what does later. The comet, I, I would argue, what does the comet like mean anything anymore? The comet was tied to a prophecy about the White Rose. True, that prophecy has been fulfilled. Well, the Dominator's been taken care of. The lady's lost her powers. The White I guess Rose the, the comet doesn't powers. really matter for my point there. What I mean is just, like, we know now that the world is going to continue for the next 30 or 40 years. So for if the next book picks up, you know, five, ten years later, or maybe a year later, or even like this book immediately afterwards, it's not going to seem too urgent, the major threat, now that I have that context in mind. Maybe that's oh, yeah, why no, the... this book needed to be written later in the series. Uh, well, so this book, I will tell you, this book was written fifth. The right, Shadow after Games Shadow was Games. Fourth. Yep. Yeah. This book takes place at the same time as Shadow Games. Okay. Okay. Oh! Yeah. Oh! Awesome! Okay. Yeah, because Shadow Games, like I said, you, like when you're reading Shadow Games, you're going to get the story of Croker and Lady traveling south and and uh, the rest of the people not catching yes. up to Yes. Okay. Cool. Cool. <laughs> awesome. Are we done with uh, Darling at this point? Uh, yes. 
Should we move on yeah, to we gotta talk about Yeah, we gotta talk about Smets. Okay. Because this is... I want to start off by making a comparison between Smeds and Marin Shed. Yeah, as yeah. I I think there's a pretty natural like place that readers are expected to go by Glenn Cook, where they're similar enough characters where they start off as these like pitiful, miserable people, but they follow very different paths. Um, I did not root for Smeds ever the same way I rooted for Marin Shed. A big part of that is because Smeds is just like a full-blown pedophile, and, you know, fuck that. Uh, you know, I, I cannot... Right. I, I mean, Marin yeah, Shed has I, I a cannot... few unsavory thoughts as well, but we don't yeah, actually see him like, acting on them, but... Yeah, like, Mar- Marin Shed's, like, thinking about, like, you know, 18, 19-year-old girls and being like, oh, yeah, oh, she's that's hot. Right, whereas, that's right, I'd mistakenly thought she was Smeds stall, the yeah. first scene we see with him, he's, like... Still. Abusing like a couple of twelve-year-old girls. And he's gotten like, yeah, they're... not only abusing them, but he's gotten them drunk, and he's offering yeah. them to oh, his yeah. friend. It's like, dude, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. dude. I was yeah. not ever rooting for him. Period at yeah. all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. You know, and so like, it, I think there's this like pitfall where the further you get in the book, the more removed you get from the pedophilia aspect of it, because he has just more important things on his mind. Uh, there's like one scene where he like has a date with a 14 year old girl or something and he forgets about the date because yeah. he you know, it was when he was uh, building the spike oh yeah the, the way he describes her too was, was like oh like yeah. like like, like what, what uh, oh shit ripening 14 youth years urgency. of ripening heat or something yeah like that. Oh. yeah that was that was awful, so distasteful awful. man i was and i was i was a little iffy at that point but i was also keeping in mind that i said a lot i was said a lot of very condemning things about Marin's shed in shadows linger and you guys said yeah but it's not really just about that it's about more than that and how he changes so i was still waiting for that moment to have right. an appreciation for smeds my my entire point my entire uh, points here about smeds are less than my points about darling even i just want to say uh let's say our introduction was not a particularly comfortable one understatement of the podcast no. um i never grew to like him i was disappointed that he lived i'm glad he learned a lot but i only cared to read from his viewpoints for timmy poor guy rest in peace timmy and old man fish yep. Smeds to me was just an uh, was just uh, a nasty smelling vehicle that I had to ride along with, uh, along in to see the scenery. Um, and I as far as Smeds go, I only uh, Smeds goes. I only liked one single line that he has in the entire book. He only had one line that made me go, okay, that was a good one. And there's this moment when the guard is tapping on his shoulder, the the press gang guard, tapping on his shoulder with a truncheon, and oh, yeah. Smeds tells him, "You better hope there's no splinters in that thing." You touch me again, I'm gonna shove it up your ass. Yeah. All right, it's like something that that somebody I work with in in the metal shop would say that we say to each other. I mean, it's it's just what it is. It's funny. It's a very masculine, overbearing. Watch it, dude. But it's still funny. Yeah, at, yeah. at its heart, it's still funny. So uh, I don't know. Every time I read uh, Smeds, I just wanted to read more about fish. So yeah, old man fish. Old was man the most fish, baby. Of that, yeah. The old best fish, character like ever. Years old. How old is he? Fish. Yeah, old man fish. Oh, he's not was... that old because he thinks about how he's actually not that old man fish, or maybe somebody well, else. So it's been it. like at this point, it's been I think what did they say twenty, about twenty years since the Battle of Charm, and uh, maybe a little more than twenty years, and he was at the Battle of Charm. Yeah, so he's he at like least like 40, 45. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I thought he was like 15 then or something like that, or 15 or 18 or 20 back then. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I saw him as, like, around yeah. 2025. I just want to say, even though he did a lot of unsavory things Because himself, he does have, like, white hair. He may be, he may have been really? older at I time. viewed him yeah, as older than Croker. Wow, I thought he was, like, yeah. 35, 40. No, because, I mean, he's got, like, he talks about how, you know, his body breaks was... down and, and all of that. He's, like, not as young as it once was, all this stuff. And, and he is described at one point as, like, being an older man. Yeah, I think it was from somebody um, else's point of view who, who, who noticed him. And they but no, I will say, there is, like, a full-on meme in the Black Company fandom about, like, how Old Man Fish is just secretly, like, Superman. <laughs> <laughs> what? He's such like a Bella badass. from the Wheel of Time? God help me. He's he's such a badass. Like, we have Raven built up for four books to be, like, the ultimate BAMF. And then yeah. every time he runs into Old Man Fish, Old Man Fish whips his ass. Yeah, but Raven like... <laughs> wasn't really, like, uh, uh, here's the thing, though. I kept wondering this, too. If if Old Man Fish had tried this on the Black Company Raven, I mean, damn, dude, I don't know how that would have worked out for him. I, I mean, he did. When Raven was in his twenties and thirties, I mean, shit. I mean, I don't know. He's he manipulated the He's so politics. Smart. He is very smart. He had all of an entire an city against each other. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually kind of hoping mastermind. that he, like Raven, would turn out to be a bigger player in the world in that we're going to get more out of him. But then I was so yeah. disappointed. Rest in peace again, by the way. Old Man Fish, he just gets written off in two sentences. Like, it was such a disappointment that he died of cholera, you know, after all that he had seen. And I was like, what? Of all things? Uh. Like, uh, man, cholera? That's, I mean, then I wrote down without realizing what I was actually writing at the time. What a shitty way to die. Pun not intended. But... The, the poor guy. I will like, say, like, the first time I read it, I was, I, I had the same thing. I, I I just had this feeling. I was like, this is going to be some, there's going to be some revelation. Old Man Fish is somebody we know from, like, back in the first book. He's going to be somebody crazy, some, like, high-level rebel yeah. or something like that. And then at the end of Chapter 56, when he goes and, like, enlists voluntarily, and he gives his name as Forto Rebus which was a joke on himself and the greys alike. It was the name he had been given at birth, but no one had used it for two generations. And I was yeah. like, oh, so he's, he is just some random dude. Like, yeah. <laughs> but, but here's another question, or at least a little notice that I, had, that I took in that moment. I was like, that's his real name. So when he tells this to somebody else, does that not grant them power over him if they know ritual? He's not a wizard, though. You have to be a wizard for somebody for your name to be uh, yeah. a danger to you. If somebody knows the ritual, you can't just do that with inanimate objects. I mean, I mean there's there's very limited utility in knowing okay. a real name. Okay. If you're okay. not like like there there's no real reason why anybody would care about a real name for a non magic user. Okay. All right. All right. Basically. Um, that's everything I had about. Holy shit! What were we just talking about? Who are we just talking about? Old Man Fish. Old Man Fish. Smiths. Thank you, because I'm looking at my, my points here. I'm like, where's Old Man Fish? I didn't... Uh, all right, where's... Yeah, okay. Got it. I mean, um, we were also talking about Smeds, so... Yeah, Smeds, Old Man Fish. That's I mean, that's the whole reason I was even remotely interested in reading Smeds' point of view. Um, I still have the Limper, and I still have Beaumonts to discuss. Okay. Not much okay. about either. Actually, only one point about either. Um, I'll start with the limper. I want to say I was so disappointed to see the limper return again. Um, I, I was already done with him before he even died in Shadows Linger. And let alone his next death in the White Rose. Seeing him resurrected 
for all intents and purposes, immediately in the Silver Spike had me going, oh, come on! Like, like okay, <laughs> I will give this to Cook, though. He was, he being Limper, was immediately bigger and badder than ever before. Uh, oh, yeah. If I'm going to give Cook any credit in this regard, it will be how he did manage to make this iteration of Limper seem more alien, more dangerous, more frightening. Uh, I, mean, I mean, the first thing he did was slaughter 40,000 innocents. That's like the first yeah. thing he did. Uh, damn, but still, it's just way too many guys, way too many times this guy has returned. That was just yeah. so I really done. don't... Eh, I didn't like it at all in this yeah. one, to be honest. I'm just... I hate that trope of, oh, and they're just back. They're resurrected, yep. or whatever. Eh. Once you eh. do this enough times as an author, particularly even counting other characters, like Raven, who faked his own death twice... Like, it, he, that 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 counting those two, that's six times now that a character has returned in a, in a series of four books. It's like well, you, I was just you, going you, through it, just the whole time thing. Well, he's just gonna get defeated again. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know. Okay. I like I okay. I, I well, <laughs> I still I don't have, think uh... Limper's dead. Just on principle, just on principle, I don't think he's dead. That's what Cook has done. <laughs> I no, I mean, I'll tell you right now, he's dead. He's dead, um, but maybe we'll see his spirit yeah. later. Maybe he'll be like in the other world, and he's, he's like still influencing he's, events. He's done. That the Limper story is done. Okay, uh, that's not a spoiler. Thank God. Um, the uh, but I do want to point out uh, we we mentioned on a, on a previous episode uh, some of the parallels between the Forsaken and the Wheel of Time and yes. the Ten who were taken in Black Company, and uh, you know this kind of theme of the resurrection of these lieutenants of the dark, you know, comes across a little bit there. And uh, I talked about how um, I thought, like, Robert Jordan almost had to have read The Black Company and that The Taken had to have been some sort of a um, an inspiration on some level for how he wrote The Forsaken. And at the time, I, I just totally blanked and was only reminded of it when I started reading... As I said, oh, uh, yeah. Shadow Games. Yeah, that's right. Shadow Games is dedicated to Harriet McDougal, Robert Jordan's widow, because she was Glenn Cook's editor for the Black Company. Like yep. there is zero chance. I'm sorry, there's zero chance Robert Jordan did not read Glenn yep. Cook's. This work. is this is there, something that yeah. Drew just told me like earlier today. I just found out earlier today. Drew was like, Oh, damn it, I totally forgot to mention this. And I was like, oh, How come yeah. you haven't mentioned that? That's awesome. That that kind of context is brilliant. Yeah, so that was my only note on the limper. Like, just Glenn Cook's legacy is pervasive. So many people don't know it because so many people haven't read these books. But what he did with the Black Company shifted the landscape of epic fantasy over the last 30 years. I mean, we, we would not have any of the biggest series you know, right now in their incarnations without the black company, they would be very different stories if they existed at all. I mean, even think about authors that got their inspiration from authors who got their inspiration from Glenn cook, like Brandon yeah, Sanderson. I mean, it's, it's one of those situations where you're like, okay, uh, it's, it's almost like a, you know, maybe, maybe if, um, if Metallica is the Tolkien of heavy metal, you okay. know, like, okay. Uh, it, it's, like uh, Glenn Cook is the, I don't know, 
the Guns N' Roses. Like, he, he was inspirational in his own way, derivative of the grandfather, but in a new sort of anti, like, opposed direction. And both of them have had massive, massive influence on the state of music or the state of fantasy in 2020. I agree. I agree with everything you just said. Yes. Um, I still have Bowmans to talk about. Bowmans, Bowmans. I'm just going to, I'm going to keep going back and forth on that (laughs) one. Um, I found him to be more engaging of a read this time around. Uh, A lot of his viewpoints are filled with very amusing encounters with, uh, for example, the creatures of the vulture. Yes. There's a particular (laughs) moment from, from his point of view when, when Bowmans (laughs) is internally griping about the Meniers as they travel via wind whale. And we see them from his point of view, like, you know, pissing people off until they just get thrown overboard in frustration. Yeah. <laughs> but minutes later, they're just inexplicably appearing back on the wind whale. It's just there's so much mischief and fun in, in, in those rare glimpses through Bowman's eyes that uh, I, I came to appreciate him a lot more. And I found him a little more engaging this time around. It was, it was more fun for me this time. Good, I'm glad. It, it is a very different character arc for him in this book. Yeah. It, the ultimate, you know, the the ultimate place he goes is similar, where Bowman still has this kind of, like, martyr complex where he feels like he has to do something, you know, like he has this moral um, uh, compulsion to act to protect the world. In the last book, it was fighting the dragon. In this book, it was being, like, a vigilant sentinel in the protection of the Silver Spike. And he takes down, like, what was it, uh, Gossamer? When when Gossamer and Spider-Silk do their uh, their little bit of treachery mm. at the end. Yeah. Man, how crazy was that last scene? <laughs> that was quite something. The spectacle... I mean, that's another point I had written down, actually. I totally yeah. didn't even mention it in my style points. The spectacle was... Oh, I think I have it in my miscellaneous here. Yeah, but it, okay. was, it was awesome. Well, every, time, every time I've read Bowman's, it's been enjoyable. That's all I'd say. Yeah. He's pretty cool. He's a pretty cool old dude. But that's everything Do I have to say about Do we have any more characters, characters to talk about? I think. Let me take a check here. Case, Raven, Smeds, Limper, Darling, Bowman's. You know, I'm good. I'm ready to head into, like, just miscellaneous. And, uh, and I can start favorite with... Favorite scenes? Yeah, and the favorite scenes. I can start with the two new words that I learned this week. Ooh. All right. Solipsistic. <laughs> yeah <laughs> the theory that only the self exists or can be proved to exist i had to look that one up or actually i didn't have to because handily with google playbooks this is not an ad i have to make that very clear but when i highlight a word i could by just holding my middle finger on the screen there it immediately mm-hmm. brings up either four options to copy paste do whatever i want or right at the bottom this whole second half of the screen is just a you know a webster definition of that word yeah, I, iBooks does the same thing. Oh, yeah, I can, that's right. I forgot I could yeah. do that with my e-reader as well. They have them built in, yeah. But uh, it, was, it was pretty cool. And uh, one that I didn't actually believe was a word until I looked it up, shibboleth. Yeah, it's like a like a code word. It's like a, a, a hmm. way to talk. Um, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm struggling to define it myself. But it's, it's like a code word. It's, it's like an in-language in kind of thing to identify yourself to right. somebody of like a like mind. Yeah, when I looked it up, it said a peculiarity of pronunciation, behavior, mode of dress, etc., that distinguishes a particular class or set of persons. Also, a slogan or catchphrase. Also, mm-hmm. a common saying or belief with little current meaning or truth. Yeah. 
Yeah, I that, that was, was a like good a one. He, he really dug deep in the bag for that one. I was like, what <laughs> is that? So, um, yeah. Uh, I've, I've only got three other things, four other things to, to say here. Just little tiny uh, points that I thought were cool here. A viewpoint from Old Father Tree, Chapter 16. I was not ready for that, but it was so, so cool in its delivery. We had abstraction. We had cadence. The brevity. There's, o- like, there's only a page or two, so it's kind of hard to well, it's kind of hard to gauge how long it was on a smartphone, but I thought it was excellent. It was awesome to read. Uh, I thought the introductions of Spider Silk and Gossamer were badass. Thus doth evil breed. That, those might be my, my four favorite words in this whole book. Uh, I, didn't... I want to point out on that topic of that chapter, Yeah. that is another chapter that I'm pretty sure Case did not write. Oh, okay. It... it... Mm. I mean, it look at the word usage. Yeah, in here. it definitely, definitely felt different. It was it, like a it, there, there album. are these short, <laughs> you know, like direct sentences, big, you know, like SAT words. It, it's it does not read like philodendron cases, normal jargon. Mm. Yeah, it def- I, I can agree with that. I want. I almost want to go back and, and read it again, as well as that uh, final scene. I mean, look. look. This last line. And then keep this, this last in line. line. There's no way Philodendron Case wrote this. Old Father Tree could not move himself, nor could he project his own power beyond certain limits. But he did have the capacity to fling out legates and janissaries in his stead. Philodendron Case did not write that. Oh, who knows what kind of interest he got. I mean, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But my, I, I had imagined the argument against that, the pushback would be, well, who knows... What uh, what he got into, what kind of studies he made, what, what what kind of interests he developed later in life, and what he practiced doing. I mean, I, I can imagine somebody okay, bringing my, that up. I agree with that. My official but, prediction is that at the end of all these books, Black Company is going to die out, and now the lady is the only one left, and she's the one who has written these scenes. Oh, damn. I, was, I thought you were about to go Ooh. to Old Man Fish. <laughs> <laughs> it's all written by Old Man Fish. <laughs> Fuck yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know. Uh, you he know, resurrected I'm... himself because he's that much of a badass. <laughs> right, I or mean... he just lied about his own death in, in the Andals. <laughs> but uh, just, just really quickly bouncing back on, on Spider Silk and Gossamer, I just want to say that whole scene was awesome. The introduction of those two was awesome. It kind of sucks that they were overshadowed completely uh, by Exile. By the way, coolest name for a also character awesome. of all time. What's that? <laughs> Also an awesome character. Oh, uh, oh, unquestionably, uh, he was he was awesome. But that the introduction of Spider Silk and Gossamer to me just deserves recognition. I thought it was a powerful bit of writing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, rest in peace, old man fish. Oh yeah, shitty way to die. I wrote that down earlier. And um, oh, last one. I had one question for you, Drew. Maybe it's something that I just didn't uh, comprehend as I should have, or I didn't notice, I didn't pick up at the time. But there's a moment. After getting fed up with the limper's insane rampage, Toad Killer Dog, he's contemplating deserting the former Taken. Yes. But he has a he has a very specific thought, a very specific thought at the end of that chapter. It, it ended the uh-huh. chapter. The limper was not the only one of the old ones who survived. Who the hell is this other? Is he? He has to be talking about the Lady of Charm, right? Because she's technically four, she's four hundred years old. She's an old one. Is he? But she's powerless. So what? Like why? Who is he talking Boy, about? I, I wish I had a just like a big old thing of popcorn to be eating right now. You son of a bitch. 
<laughs> I think we have a pretty things. good idea who an upcoming antagonist is going to be. Okay. 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 All right. So it's good that I picked up on that then. All right. That's all I'm taking away from that. <laughs> I am ready to go into favorite scenes and predictions. Okay. Uh, How does yeah. Toad Killer Dog know all this shit? Actually, I don't have Quick any predictions. aside. I made them already. Yeah, really. Uh, Toad Killer Dog is very powerfully magic. I mean, he... We, we have lots of things in this where, like, the more powerfully, you know, you're attuned to sorcery, the more you can sense uh, other magic users. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Favorite scenes? Sure. Okay. I'll start with my third place favorite scene. Limper's Resurrection. I have a quote here. The head could now speak in a soft, gravelly whisper. It ordered, collect your best 50 warriors. Or, sorry, 50 best warriors. The old men balked. They had done their part. They had no taste for adventures. The thing they had created whispered a chant in which there were no waste words. Three old men died screaming, devoured by worms that ate them from within. Gather your 50 best warriors. Survivors did yeah. as they were told. Oh, <laughs> that last line just punches so hard. I loved it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Jared, your third um, favorite. Yeah, I guess I would say uh, I never write these in order. Um, <laughs> the, when Fish and Smed. Uh, are taking out that healer, the healer guy, the guy before the physician, and it's raining yes. earlier okay. in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that one really stuck out to me. Yeah, it was that very was, tense. That was a really good scene. It was very tense, atmospheric, oh, yeah. tense. That was another one that reminded me a lot of Shadows Linger. Yes, and, with um, with Marin Shed. Shed. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. killing Gilbert. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Sweet. Uh, my third favorite scene is uh, <laughs> the, I mean, just just the madness on the wall. Like, the whole, the whole like, final climactic scene at Orr. I can't, I can't really, like, point to one specific part of it. Just, it, it's so insane. There's so many different plots that all just, like, get set off at the same time where, where like, six different people are all trying to get the silver spike at the same time and, everybody's stabbing each other in the back and some of them are stabbing each other in the front and like <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's it's just fun i i i love fun. the fireworks in that scene one of my favorite uh parts of i don't know that i say the ending scene but just the climax in general is just how offhand glenn cook writes that like oh yeah and then all the wizards that were in the city just turned against each other too <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's like yeah, when the riots happen. And he's like, a, a bunch of the magic users decided to band together and gang up on Gossamer and Spider Silk. They, the, the palace got set on fire. Rumor had <laughs> one of the twins dead. And then all of them turned on each other and thousands died. Like, <laughs> you're just like, oh, just that? That's it? Like, yeah. 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 And, no and then Case is like, we, we, we watched the fires on the horizon. <laughs> yes. All right. Oh. Uh, my second favorite. Oh, uh, shit. I'm trying to decide. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch it here. I'm going to switch it at the last second. My second favorite, Silence Sacrifice. 
And I said, what else mm-hmm. needs to be said about this moment? My man's silent, always tortured, hopeless, and I quoted, smiling through his tears as he, as he looked at Darling one last time before plummeting onto that limper creature's back to stall it for even longer. And then after mm-hmm. all that, Raven, the man who Darling actually loved and spurned him for, to turn his back on everyone in the end. I was like, it's just, I just wrote down, rest in peace, silent, badass, and honest until the end. Most respectable death yet, in my opinion, for a member of the Black Company. Mm-hmm. And that is quite the feat. Wow. Okay. Okay. Even more Dang. so than, than the, the Lieutenant and Elmo. I thought, which were also super More badass. More than the captain. Oh, the captain. The captain was awesome, too. Oh, the captain. I forgot about He's, like, number two, I think. I still love this one, though. Yeah. Silent just smiling through his tears. Because the captain Stealing did it to save... the ladies' carpet. Yeah, the captain did it to save hundreds of men, which is arguably in its own way badass more. But the fact that Silent did it for the right one, mm-hmm. to me, just really, nice. really struck home. So, yeah, that was my number two. Jared? Uh, my next one was when the limper traps Toad Killer Dog in like the the basement of the temple. Oh yeah, that was gruesome, man. It's very um. That's first time in a while that I've like been visibly uh grossed out by a particular scene. Yeah, given what uh, happens immediately before the cannibalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how, like, yeah. he thinks at the end he has to add that one little detail. Like, even if it had only lasted an hour, none of them would have walked away. <laughs> it's like, okay, mm-hmm. then. Piece yeah. of shit. Okay, yeah. Drew? Uh, my, so my second favorite scene is also kind of dealing with the limper and toad killer dog. Uh, but it's, it's, it's more like, I mean, I guess a couple of scenes. Uh, it's the extended campaign, the ladies' minions, uh like carry out against the limper on his journey where they like keep setting these traps and things but but like specifically the culminating scene where they finally turn sorcery against the limper once he's once he's completely focused on mechanical traps and and stuff like that and suddenly he finds himself walking in circles for hundreds of miles yes yes and then toad killer dog finally catches up and he's just like oh this is interesting i'm just gonna sit down and watch them torment him and as soon as he sits down the the Imperials just pack up and leave, and Tokyo Dog's like, really? <laughs> I particularly love the fact that they managed to trick, you know, Limper into going yeah. in circles. I was like, ooh, that's gotta hurt for the ego. That's really gotta hurt for the ego because he knows oh, now the he's psychological warfare now. there. Yeah, yeah. Because he's so unstable, he's so angry, so, yeah. and they know it. They so know the, it. At, yeah. So at the mercy of his own rage. Ah. Mm-hmm. All right, my favorite scene. This is a bit of a lengthier one just because I wrote down the entirety of the quote here. My favorite scene is Darling's display of power. Then the shriek of the eagle, it was an eagle, ripped the air. The raptor came screaming down. Before it lighted on Darling's shoulder with what had to be bone-rattling impact, she pointed out at the land beyond the walls. All heads turned. Three, five, six, seven, eight. The wind whales rose into the sky. Squadrons, troops, battalions of centaurs came cantering out of hiding. The drum of their hooves and continuous thunder, despite the muting effort of the snow. Whole sections of wood started moving towards the city. Montas began to slip 
on the backs of the sorry began to slip off the backs of the wind whales scouting for updrafts. More glided over the city from behind us just to let the world know the place was surrounded. Darling rose in her stirrups and surveyed her surroundings, searching for someone who did not agree that this was the day of the white rose. Just for sheer aesthetic, boys. This some, scene some Tolkien esque prose right oh, there. Cook got to really flex his muscles of spectacle here. I loved it. That was I could tell that was a scene that he had been waiting to write. And yeah. it was fucking cool. That's my favorite scene in the book. Yeah, it's a great one. Thank Jared, you. Jared, what do you got? Well, since Rob just stole my third one. <laughs> my <laughs> legacy continues. <laughs> I'm going to go with when Limper finally, thankfully, no questions asked, is gonzo into wherever the hell that was, between universes or something. The void between planes or something like that, yeah. Yeah. As I said in my, my uh, synopsis, yeeted into the void. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, and I like how there was, like, a whole coffin that they had to use because, like, he was fused with, like, all the, like, random limbs and bones of the other monsters. <laughs> yeah, I also love how uh, Glenn Cook, like, specifically calls it slow cooking. Yeah. yeah. On, on that subject. <laughs> and rendering him. <laughs> on that subject, I just wanted to, like, give a little glimpse behind the scenes here in our group chat for, for uh, the Inking Out Loud podcast here we're having also with, that has Jared and, and Patrick in, involved as well. I had, uh, Drew was mentioning earlier today how he had like, said, like, damn it, I forgot to mention about Harriet being an editor and that obviously Robert Jordan has to have read, like, all of these books. There's no question about it. And I wrote down in response, well, this, this, it's a good thing that we have one, at least one cookbook left for you to bring it up. At which point, of course, Pat chimes in and goes, cookbook, ha! And I wrote, oh, yeah, particularly considering the end of what happened to Limper there. Rest in peace, man. <laughs> cookbook was the perfect phrase to use there. It was. Yikes. It was. Oh man, I just imagine so, this paste that was left over after a week of cooking. They just let it finally boil off. Oh, yeah. How much money yeah, would my, you need? No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Go ahead. My favorite scene was a little, little different one, uh, reminiscent of a certain scene in the Dragon Reborn, actually involving Matt and Gawain and Galad, uh, when okay. Philodendron Case is sparring, and the Night Stalker recognizes the scar on his cheek and he's just all business mm -hmm. he's like takes the guard off the spear tip he's like you know give him a spear you know it's like it got real quiet everybody wondered what the hell except my sergeant i thought i knew Queensbridge, but it didn't make no sense it was over a long time ago my sergeant tried to argue the night stalker just growled give him a spear and then case just wrecks the dude and walks away and says, you're wrong. I wasn't there. But if you was right, you should have remembered that the Night Stalkers are only second best one-on-one. -on -one. Yep. What a badass. Yep, yep. <laughs> it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Love that scene. Awesome. I love it. Uh, that's pretty much everything I have to say about the first four books in this series. I'm ready for uh, my final draft. Let's do it. All right. I'll start first, too. Um, so I'm drinking for today something that I have 
I'm pretty sure I have featured only once before. This is a Crown Royal Northern Harvest Rye. So it's a rye whiskey. It's 45% mm. ABV. It's won a lot of awards for being, for its price point, which is still pretty modest. Up here, it's like 35 Canadian dollars for a 26er. Um, I'm not... I'm not entirely certain not what actually you would call these. What do you call these? This size here, it's 750 milliliter. Oh, you don't even use milliliters. Yeah, 750. Either. Yeah. Oh, you do? Yeah, I just called a 750. You call it a 750? Yeah. So for a 750, yeah. it's 35 bucks American. That'd be like 27. I want to say. That's a good price. It's a pretty damn yeah. good price for considering how many awards it's won. It's very very smooth. Again, as a whiskey, and me being a whiskey guy, I I drink it properly, which means straight neat with just a splash of water to take the smallest bite off so you can appreciate more out of it that's at least how i hear it's supposed to be done but i will not uh claim to be the ultimate authority but it is awesome i love this this whiskey every time it's probably my second favorite liquor um besides that glenfiddich glenfiddich 12 yeah. year 12 year <laughs> that i just love bringing back on occasion too that's probably my favorite but my second favorite if i were to pick one would be this crown royal uh northern harvest rye it's Awesome stuff. And strong. Like Very I said, nice. 45% ABV. So. Very yeah. nice. Jared, what do you got? Uh, nothing special today. Same as last week. Finishing up my case of Sam Adams Samarial. Oh, yeah? Ooh. Refreshing. I remember talking lots of good about Sam Adams last week. Hey, the fact that I'm getting through it means it's good, right? Yeah, yeah. man. Yeah, man. Yeah. Not that you're a particularly well, picky person, from my experience. <laughs> I mean, oh no, Jared no. is a man of discerning taste. Oh yeah, is he? It nice. depends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I have a surprise this week. Ooh. Oh. I did you, bring in. I did bring in a thematically appropriate beer. I know okay. it's shocking. I'm Damn. still waiting for the surprise. <laughs> no. Uh, so I'm drinking a blackberry wild ale from Dwinnell County Ales. Excuse me, Dwinnell Country Ales uh, in Washington. This is an oak-aged wild ale with second-use obsidian blackberries. It is, uh, it's nicely tart. Lots of that, you know, lots of that blackberry flavor going on here. It is called Waiting Game. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. All right, all right. That struck the right note. I like it. I can appreciate that's, it. That's for that's for Smeds and Fish. That's for Tully and and rest his soul, sweet little Timmy Loken. Yeah, <laughs> having to buy time and not having enough money. Oh, just having to sit on the spike, wait out all the chaos, hope to find somebody yep. who's gonna deal fair. Oh, and that yep. that weird ass. I knew right away that something was up when he we start he started noticing the burn on his hand. I know right oh, away. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I actually said out loud too. I was, uh oh, like I actually it's just an <laughs> instinctual gut reaction. Of course, seeing that black mark spread, seeing it spread through the city, I was like, oh damn, they got that Rona. You know, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Rest in peace, Timmy. As as Smed said, if there's one who deserves yes. to be there in his stead, it's Timmy. So I think that wraps up our coverage of the Silver Spike. And the books of the North. This has been episode 70 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we are going to be covering City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty. It's a newer fantasy book, and we will have a new guest on the podcast for that as well. So make sure you check that one out. 
It's an award-winning, more recent fantasy book. As always, if you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash eatingoutloud. You can get access to bonus episodes, uh, monthly short fiction written by Rob and me. Uh, We have a monthly newsletter, all kinds of fun stuff. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. As always, my co-host, Rob Santos. Yeah, buddy. And our special guest, Jared Livingston. It was awesome to be back Bye-bye for now. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye, everyone. See you guys.